Blazers Nation. This is Jack Winter, your Portland Trailblazers beat writer for Clutch Points, and you are now listening to Talking Trailblazers. This is episode 14. It is Wednesday, April 27th. Got some nice weather here in Rip City today. And for this week's show, instead of going over all the Blazers minutiae, all the all the Blazers' big talking points for the summer, going over free agents, potential draftees, potential trades, all that type of stuff um, that we'll be discussing throughout the summer. And then, of course, heading into 22-23, me and Justice, our, Justice Rogers, our weekly guest, are instead just going to answer questions about the ongoing NBA playoffs, which have really just been nothing but a pleasure um, for anyone watching, but especially me, frankly. just been so exciting watching all this different basketball um, after after a year with the Trailblazers, it obviously didn't go the way uh, that anyone anticipated, um, especially the people in that locker room. Uh, I guess those who were there at the beginning and then those who were there at the end as well. No one anticipated it going that way. But yes, for this week's show, we're going to generally talk about the NBA playoffs. There will undoubtedly be some Blazers discussion, uh, specifically some talk about Yusuf Nurkic that I think actually applies uh applies to the Blazers um, vis-a-vis the playoffs and how certain bigs, certain types of big men are being kind of ostracized from playing rotations, uh, given opponents, context-specific stuff, all that. Uh, So we will certainly talk about the Blazers a little bit while we discuss the playoffs, but the playoffs in general are going to be our main focus on this week's show. So we are going to take a very quick break, and then we will bring Justice in for some playoff talk. Thanks for listening to Talking Trailblazers. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back with Talking Trailblazers. This is Jack Winter. But unlike every other episode of the show so far, the focus of this one will not be on Rip City, but the playoffs at large. And to foster that discussion, we got a friend of the show, weekly guest, what are you, Justice? Basically co-host of Talking Trailblazers at this point, <coughs> Justice Rogers. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, boys. Uh, thank you for having me here. And, uh, yeah, I guess band of the show would be a good, a good title out of quit. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Justice, obviously the playoffs are ongoing. We talked uh, we talked the first round a bit um, during the last segment of last week's show. But I want to focus a little more on the ongoing playoffs just because, let's be honest, we'll be talking the Blazers all summer. There's only so much to cover there. Um, and, you know, we'll probably be getting into more draft coverage here, honestly, with the, with the draft now less than two months away. And we have a kind of a picture – at least kind of an idea what the Blazers may do on draft night now that we just have that, uh, they just have that one pick. So mm-hmm. we just want to focus on the playoffs right now. And Justice and I, you know, sent a, sent a few texts, a couple emails, that type of thing about what we wanted to cover on this week's show. And we're basically just going to be asking each other questions and uh, going back and forth. Uh, so Justice, do you want to ask me a question to start the show or should I ask you? Up to you. Jack, I got a real easy question for you. Softball, just a little lob over the plate. So many great series going on in the playoffs right now. But for you personally, which one are you enjoying the most? Which one are you really locked into right now? Uh, is anyone watching every series not going to say Memphis, Minnesota? Like, right. I, 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 <laughs> and, you know, that's what I anticipated coming into the first round as well. But I've just been blown away by the tenor of this series so far. Obviously, in, uh, you know, in game two, we had that incredible... Was it game three now? I'm getting them all mixed up because they're all. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was actually game three. The Grizzlies come back uh, from multiple 20 point deficits. They were down 26 in the second quarter, and then I think 25 in the third quarter um, before running for a 21 0 run. Then it got them back in game three, and then they ended up winning that game. But then last night's game five, just an absolute classic. The Timberwolves in control from basically the opening tip, um, and even. 
even extended their lead to, I think, 13 on the Carl Anthony Towns three-pointer at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And that was after John Morant's just instant classic epic poster dunk over Malik Beasley. So you would have, and that was in the late third quarter, you would have thought that really would have changed the momentum of game five, but it didn't quite do it. Uh, Really a testament to the Timberwolves that they were able to, again, I think they were up 13 after a Towns three, and that was when he, that was when he shushed the crowd early right. in the quarter, and then all, and then all of a sudden, Memphis, you know, Memphis takes Game Five on, well, on uh, you know, one possession obviously doesn't win or lose a game, but Anthony Edwards' mistake on that last possession of going for a steal on Jaw Moran, allowing Jaw to easily turn the corner off at a uh, sideline out of bounds play for that left-handed finish um, around Jared Vanderbilt. Big, big mistake by Edwards. Of course, it came after he hit a uh, corner three, catch and shoot corner three to tie the game. Just a brilliantly drawn sideline out of sideline out of bounds play by uh, Chris Finch there. But yeah, obviously for me, it's Memphis, Minnesota, and it's not even very close at this point it's just been such an awesome series and really delivered on every front and that's despite the fact that John Morant really hasn't quite played as well as you thought he might coming in uh he t- obviously turned it on the fourth quarter last night I think he scored the Memphis's last 13 um yes. yeah for me it, you know that's that's it's it's Memphis Minnesota and it's not really close yeah, no, same here, same here. I, I was expecting that answer from you. I think that's like the uh, consensus right now. I think the majority of NBA fans and even folks that just like a uh, good basketball game, Minnesota and Memphis, I guess the main thing that I'm surprised at is I really didn't think that this pace that they've been playing at was going to continue for the whole series. And, mm-hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but so far everything's been back and forth. You know, big lead, and you know the team comes back, or like you said, Memphis coming uh, back twice. I think it was from twenty point uh, deficits. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's been it's been pretty crazy. I've really been enjoying watching uh, the young guys, Andy Edwards, Durant. Uh, some great matchups in this series so far, and I really I'd like to see it go seven games. Um, do you feel the same way? Uh, I mean, listen. I want as much of this. I want as much Memphis, Minnesota basketball as we can get. Thankfully, both are young teams, and both are poised to be maybe not maybe powers in the Western Conference for the next however many years, but certainly playoff teams. So I think we'll see this matchup again. I do not know that we will see a game seven, though. As much as I'd like to, um, you know, if let's let's be honest, it seems like John Morant uh, a little light. You know the light flip, the light. This he flipped the switch last night, if you will. Uh, yes, the, the, yes, the light finally came on for him. Is I guess what I was trying to say. He'd been so tentative throughout this series. Part of it was the fact that Minnesota plays that really, really aggressive defensive style. Especially mm-hmm. after Game Three, they really committed to packing the paint, sending two defenders a jaw on the ball, but also making him see multiple layers of defense behind him. Um, and so that's you know even even for John Morant, even for one of the most dynamic penetrators the NBA has ever seen. It's, it's hard to get to the paint again and again and again. But last night, especially late, it kind of seems like Memphis figured some stuff out um, in terms of ensuring that he would be matched up with either Carl Anthony Towns or D'Angelo Russell. Um, so, yes, I, I'm actually going to pick Memphis in Game 6. Certainly, I'll suspect Jaron Jackson Jr. to play a little better. My God, his inability to stay in foul trouble has just been so head-scratching. Uh, mm-hmm. Not head-scratching in the sense that it's surprising, because obviously it's been a bugaboo for him his entire career, but just some of the fouls. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, spe- specifically last night, he I think he fouled out fouling Towns on a three-pointer, knowing he had five. He, oh, right. God, he fouled out on that play. So, yeah, I like I like Memphis in Game Six, though. Again, I'd I'd love to see a Game Seven, and and I think these teams are are ripe for many more playoff matchups in years to come. 
Oh yeah, no, no, definitely. They've pushed themselves just in this series alone that they'll be back, even if it's just the first round every year. They'll they'll pretty much be, you know, up there in the standings going towards this time of year. I think every season for at least the next couple years, because of course their rosters are so young. Um, and then, of course, I think we're just going to see even more from John Morant as he matures in his game. And uh, I think we even talked about it last episode. Uh, the money's going to be flowing in Memphis <laughs> because they just they, their stock is going to be so high at the end of this season. You know, going to the series, I didn't. It was going to be this. I actually originally had Minnesota almost sweeping Memphis. I didn't think they'd be able to stop. Cat, I, I thought Anthony Edwards was going to go crazy. So I'm actually shocked that uh, this series is going the way it is. But like you, um, I also have Memphis uh, winning this series. Um, it just they in every game, even in the ones they've lost, they just show so much. Uh, you know, they come back mm-hmm. from being down 15 or 20, or they have those clutch moments, um, like Jamal with the game-winning layup uh, the other night. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really see that on Minnesota's end. You know, I do see them play well, but I don't even know if it's a coaching issue or a team issue. But they keep blowing these big leads, man. I, I don't know what the deal is with that. Yeah, I mean, you said it's, you know, it's not necessarily a coaching issue. It's not necessarily a player issue. It's not necessarily a culture issue. But for me, what it really comes down to more than anything else is just the personnel. Um, it, it really is. It really is everything. But when you when you have a team that's led by Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell, obviously those those guys aren't. You know, they're they're relying on the jump shot. But then an, even a bigger problem is that neither of them are good defenders. And so Jaw mm-hmm. just picked on them again and again and again late last night. Uh, Taylor Jenkins finally figured out that if you just bring the it was the players being guarded by Cat and D'Angelo Russell up into kind of a double high ball screen and a horn set, then Jaw can just pick which way to go, which player to attack, and draw two to the ball that way um, every single time. So there was a time he was able to get past Cat and going left. He crossed Cat over to split the pick and roll for another nice finish. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely think personnel has a lot to do with it. But then just in general, you hear so much about the culture that's been implemented in Memphis just since Jaw has been there. Um, just what an incredible turnaround it's been for them in that sense. It seems like grit and grind was just three or four years ago because it was. And now all of a sudden right. it's grit and grind, you know, next generation. Um, so just the culture that's been built in Memphis, it just doesn't seem like it's like it's quite there in Minnesota. They're, they're really still trying to, uh, you know, come out from under the kind of the dark days they had during the Wiggins era. And then even before that, mm-hmm. you know, their, their most successful th- season was when in 2004, one of the most memorable seasons in the, in the NBA for me. Uh, right. Kevin Garnett won MVP and KG is my all time favorite player, but you know, it's just been, <laughs> it's just been so long since uh, good things have happened to, to the Minnesota Timberwolves and it's, they're finally starting to happen again. But for Memphis, you know, they've just got an unwavering sense of confidence and belief in themselves. Um, and, they, and they just have so many ways, different ways they can play different players. They can throw at you. Uh, for instance, I really thought la- last night's game was interesting. Uh, Taylor Jenkins closed extra small with Dylan Brooks guarding cat and then Brandon Clark at the five. Um, they're just, uh, he was kind of forced into that as well. Cause Jaron Jackson Jr. Had already fouled, fouled out. Kyle Anderson was kind of ineffective and they just aren't going to guard Kyle Anderson the way they're, the way, the way they're going to guard Dylan Brooks and all that. But, um, so yeah, I, I think it's a multitude of things. Why Memphis is a, has been able to overcome those major deficits that, that they've had in this series, where we think Minnesota wouldn't, or Minnesota wouldn't be able to, or hasn't been able to hang on. Um, I really just think it comes back to that culture and then just some, more specific personnel issues more than anything else. Sure. It's funny. I 
touch on a point that you made that I really didn't even realize until you said it, but it also plays a part if it was yesterday. Uh, Minnesota's they're not the greatest in the paint and Elo is not great. Uh, as I said, you know, we'll see how smooth this goes. Uh, to the series with uh, the Boston Celtics ending with a swept. I think that might have been, what do you think there? Side of all skills when it comes to the Nets. You know, Justice, unfortunately, you were again breaking up just there, but I assume you were asking about Brooklyn and Boston, right? Yes, and I was basically you were talking about how with Minnesota, uh, their star players are not the best defensively ah. when it comes at, when it comes to D'Lo, I think that might have been what hindered Brooklyn. Does that sound some way on, on point there? or I think that absolutely sounds on point. Um, I mean, specifically Kyrie Irving um, is obviously a negative defender. He has physical right. capabilities throughout his career. He's never been a plus defender. Probably, probably mm-hmm. at his best uh, in that 2016 title run with the Cavs where he was really, really locked in on every possession versus the Warriors. But even so, you know, he was a guy the Warriors would attack, a guy who would make mistakes, uh, partially just because, again, he's a little bit physically limited. He's not, uh, you know, he's not super long for a point guard. He's very quick, but he's not super strong or anything like that. Um, but then just in general, he's not a defensive player. Uh, everyone knows that Kyrie hangs his hat on offense. And Kevin Durant wasn't quite as engaged defensively in this series as I would have liked. Then again, I think he knew he was fighting an uphill battle in this series. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. I think I think it was pretty obvious to him from the very beginning that the Nets were going to have a really hard time beating uh, Boston. Um, certainly, if they certainly if they couldn't get stops. But the bigger problem in the series for me, and even though Brooklyn actually turned out to I'm not sure what their offensive rating was in that series. Um, I think it was probably higher than the tenor of the series indicated. You know, it was a four-game sweep. You would think Brooklyn really, really had trouble scoring. But as a team, I don't think they did. What was really problematic is that Kyrie and Kevin Durant just weren't Kyrie and Kevin Durant offensively. You know, if there was sure, sure. if there was one tandem in the NBA who I would have been confident could go up against Boston's switching system, um, you know, where they where they keep Robert Williams uh, keep Robert Williams at the rim on a non shooter in the corner so he can roam and protect the rim and then switch across four positions. Otherwise, and, you know, even without Rob Williams, they were able to do that for the first two games of the series. But I would have guessed that in, that the star tandem best equipped to go up against that defense would be Brooklyn. And instead, right, yeah. And instead, Kyrie and KD just weren't the Kyrie and KD we have come to know um, no. over the past. My God, they've been in the league so long, certainly half decade uh, for, you know, for KD goes back, goes back a full decade. Uh, he was just outplayed mm-hmm. by Jason Tatum in this series. And if you told me that coming into it, I would have said, oh, well, there is no way. Brooklyn is winning this series if Kevin Durant's not going to be the best player in it. And that's not what happened. Um, and he was outplayed by, by Jason Tatum on both sides of the ball to me. Yeah, no, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know in the games I watched, it seemed like Jason Tatum, whatever Boston, to me, that's a big mistake because as long as KD is and you know Jason Tatum was one uh, Jalen Brown as well there, but I thought that he might match up with Jason Tatum at least on on the defensive side of things. I know Tatum didn't play B on KD at all, right? But I was hoping that that might be the case and that might help him actually stop the ball a little bit because, like you said, Jason Tatum was unbelievable this series. I mean, 
I didn't think that Boston was going to sweep Brooklyn. I thought no. it would be a little bit more competitive than that. And, and, and for me, that's even with... Uh, uh, with uh, with Ben Simmons not not showing up and not not playing at all. I, I didn't, <laughs> you know, but no, I'm serious. I, I knew they were going to be competitive than that. You know what I mean? No, no, I, I absolutely, absolutely, I did too. Uh, just getting back to your question about uh, or your remark about how you know putting KD on Tatum, perhaps that would have slowed Tatum down a little bit. I think what Steve Nash's thought was is that Brooklyn just had no help defense. They just had no they just had no length um, other than KD and Andre Drummond. So if you're going to put KD on Tatum, then you don't have anyone on the back line other than Andre Drummond um, to protect the rim, to make plays at the nail, that type of thing. And obviously they weren't playing Drummond all 48 minutes. Um, they were playing Nick Claxton some at the five, and they even went KD with the five a little bit. Um, so I think that had something to do with it for sure, just the fact that you like KD more as a roamer than as a primary defender uh, to me. Uh, not not just because of his length, but because you know he, he's very disruptive. And then also because of just the burden he has to carry offensively. You know, how many players in the NBA mm -hmm. these days are being asked to both be a team's primary offensive option and then the primary defensive option of an opposing star ball handler, of an opposing star wing? That's just not really a role that guys are asked to play anymore. Um, and, and Tatum did it to a certain extent in this series, though Boston's offense is a little more egalitarian. Um, than Brooklyn's, obviously. They you know they, they play with flow. They get the ball from side to side. It's, whereas Brooklyn is more of just a heavy ISO team. Um, so, yeah, for me, that, for me, that's what it was more than anything with regard to the KD-Tatum mm -hmm. matchup. But, again, I was just so shocked that Tatum outplayed KD the way he did, even considering the supporting cast, even considering the fact that, you know, if KD was able to get half a shoulder by Tatum, then the Celtics were packing the paint because they didn't have to guard Bruce Brown. They didn't have mm -hmm. to guard Andre Drummond. They didn't have to guard Nick Claxton. Even considering all that context, this was the first time where I thought to myself, oh, God, maybe Kevin Durant has lost a step. You know, I, <laughs> which is incredible considering he's 33 going on 34 and has had multiple injuries, including that, you know, including that torn Achilles, um, mm -hmm. that we all, that we all remember. Um, but, but that's just, that's the thing that I'll never forget from this series and all. And I really won't forget all summer as I'm kind of prognosticating what's going to happen next season. Is Kevin Durant really still a top three to five player in the league? I would say yes, but just based on what right. happened in this series, Either he's not, or Tatum has joined that party. If that makes sense, um, and and that's and that's an oversimplification, um, but but to me, that's the that's the biggest takeaway for me. What I, I totally agree. With the uh, you just made is yeah, I think Tatum has joined that party. And just look at social media during seasons. It seemed like everybody was like, okay, Jason Tatum, he's in that group now. You got to put him up there with. You know the five top ten. Um, mm -hmm. Now it's almost like, okay, yeah, he's leaps and bounds. Even for me personally, in my opinion, he's way farther um, as far as his uh, um, his game has developed than I thought he would be at this point in his career. Okay, um, because we, yeah, you know, we knew he was we knew he was a scorer. You know, we knew he was long and lanky. He can get to the basket. Um, you knew we, we all knew he could shoot, but I don't know if I thought he would be this clutch. If he would be this kind of cold blooded and lethal on the court, is it's just for me, it's something. Yeah, he's going to be that, and not only, but I think Eastern Conference for a while. Uh, just going based on this alone. 
No, I totally agree. And you know, I don't even think we have to, you're kind of breaking up there again, unfortunately, but I don't even think we need to look that far forward um, based on what, right. based on what Boston was doing, what they did in the first round, what they did really since January uh, when they were mm-hmm. by far the best team in the league um, had the best defense in the league by a wide margin as well. Tatum was, you know, a top three player in the league. I would not be surprised at all if Boston won the title this season. Um, is, no. it, is, is that where you are? You know what's crazy is they're actually my prediction for the finals. There you go. And, uh, and look, I was talking to a uh, family member of mine yesterday, and uh, they're going with Milwaukee. And I said, nope. Now, I got Celtics all the way. Um, I was so – one thing that I really like about the Celtics right now, and this probably sounds crazy coming from a lifelong Laker fan, <laughs> but uh, the, the one thing that I do like about at least uh, the Celtics, their team structure is – Outside of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, probably the you know primary scorers and ball handlers on the team, mm-hmm. they've just got great support players. I mean, if you think about Marcus Smart, if you think about Williams, you know these guys aren't exactly you know all stars, but they all play their role. They all do that one job that can kind of get them win. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense, and this can actually seeg into one of our next questions that we wanted to, that we wanted to discuss. You just you just described Marcus Smart as a role player. He is a role player. He also happens to be the newly minted Defensive Player of the Year. Um, yes, he is. And they, and I believe the first guard to win Defensive Player of the Year since Gary Payton in nineteen ninety six. Is that right? I don't. I, I think that's right. Ninety six probably sounds right because that's when the Sonics won the won, made the finals um, against right. against the Bulls. So that was probably one of their best years. I was very very young then, and honestly, Justice, who knows if you were even alive? Um, <laughs> yeah, I was a, a one. I think. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but but I but I love what you said about the way Boston's roster is built. I totally agree. Um, it all. But you know, one of the reasons why it's. Uh, you know why they've been able to build such cohesive rosters because their two best players are two extremely versatile wings. Um, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum can play multiple multiple positions. They can play multiple roles. Um, and when you have that foundation from which to build, it's just a lot easier to play a guy like Marcus Smart at the one. Uh, you know who's not a great shooter, who isn't a great who's who's a solid passer. He's an, he's an improved shooter, but. As far as NBA point guards go, he's probably a below average playmaker for NBA starting sure. point guards. But you just don't need him to use as much of the ball um, or to be as aggressive as most point guards because you have Jason Tatum, because you have Jalen Brown, because you have a guy like Al Horford who you can run dribble handoffs with, uh, because you have Rob mm-hmm. Williams who's like an under an, a weirdly underrated passer, kind of a spectacular passer at times. Right. Um, but, but getting back to smart. Um, just what we talked about, uh, what we want to discuss was whether or not we thought he was worthy of defensive player of the year. And it's just such an interesting case for me. And I haven't really dug into the numbers, uh, in a way that I'd be making the case for anyone else other than smart, though. I do think what's something very interesting about it is that Mikhail Bridges finished second in the voting this year. And I do not think Mikhail Bridges is on the level of Marcus smart as a defender. Um, and I thought that going into the playoffs before the defensive player of the year voting came out. But what's been interesting in the first round is that Mikael Bridges has just been getting eaten alive by Brandon Ingram. Um, (laughs) At least until game five, where Bridges was just absolutely fantastic at 31 points and honestly looked like a, looked like the type of wing perimeter defender who could be up for defensive player of the year and frustrating Brandon Ingram. But I just think Ingram's success in his kind of first playoff go round kind of speaks to the fact that Perimeter defenders just aren't as valuable as 
as elite rim protectors or all court big men who can switch on to guards, play drop, play at the ball, um, and then also defend the rim at an elite level, like a Giannis under Kumpo or a Draymond Green type. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's like that's the biggest question I have with Smart Winning is just whether or not he's valuable enough. Um, and it's not just whether or not he's valuable enough to the Celtics, because I think in a vacuum, um, the, there it is a question um, of whether or not Marcus Smart would be valuable enough as a perimeter defender to win Defensive Player of the Year. But for Boston, for a team that has all these incredibly long, skilled, coordinated athletes behind him, then yes, you can absolutely switch across five positions or four positions uh, when they, you know, when they keep Robert Williams in the basket. You can scram switch all the time. You can be very aggressive behind the play because you know that Marcus Smart is going to be able to do whatever you need him to do out there and kind of quarterback your defense. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm not upset with him winning. I do think it's interesting that this is the year all of a sudden that we decided two perimeter players need to be, uh, you know, our, our our first and second vote getters in defensive player of the year, just because it's been so long since that happened. Very true. And what I will say is, if if this is the beginning of now where we're you know, more focusing on, you know, guards and guys that can guard and uh, play defense on the perimeter well. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad at Marcus Smart getting it first because we know he's probably one of the greatest uh, defenders in the league right now. He's scrappy. He's just one of those guys that you got to have either in your lineup or um, in your rotation because he just does it all, mainly on the defensive side. But, of course, we know, you know, he contributes uh, uh, in the offense as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, yeah, no, he, he would have got my vote for sure. Marcus Smart, Marcus Smart. Uh, I've been a fan of, of his game uh, since he was at Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, no, no, he, he definitely deserved it. And, once again, like I said, this Celtics team, you got guys, you got Grant Williams, you got mm-hmm. even Peyton Pritchard, you know, the Oregon native. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peyton, Peyton Pritchard has been, you know, getting his layups and shots here and there. And so it just seems like right now, for some reason, Boston, they just have a complete team from the starting lineup to the guys that are – you know, first and second and third off the bench. Yep. And I think I think that's going to benefit them, you know, going into the uh, whoever they play in the next series. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Brad Stevens, of course, it's his first year in the front office. He was coached before then for six or seven years. He's just done an awesome job building this team. And credit Danny Ainge as well, who's since moved on to since moved on to Utah. But he also laid these pieces. And then obviously, I think you give the biggest credit to Ime Udoka, uh, Boston was really, really struggling at the beginning of the season, underachieving on both ends. Jason Tatum was still recovering from some really bad COVID symptoms he had after, even after getting it last season. He was talking about uh, how at the beginning of this this year, he was still kind of getting his wind and getting back to being himself. Obviously, he's himself now. Um, yeah. <laughs> my God, looks like a top five player in the world, as we discussed. Um, exactly. But, but but for Boston as well, I think it's just because those because their top guys really are very talented. And by top guys, I don't necessarily mean their uh, most talented players, but just the guys you think of when you think of the Celtics. You think of Tatum, you think of Brown, you think of Smart, you think of Horford. Um, and now you're starting to think of Rob Williams as well. But then you forget about Grant Williams, who was just awesome right. in that Brooklyn series and shot over 50% from three. I believe um, in that series and really came alive from three this season in general as well. and was a really capable switch defender for Boston too, of, uh, of both Kyrie mm-hmm. and KD specifically Kyrie, uh, Peyton Pritchard, you mentioned and then Daniel Tice, you know, they, like they read, they, yes. they reacquired him at the deadline. And like, I kind of laughed at that on honestly, <laughs> because they already had Rob Williams and they had Al Horford. And I would have preferred that they play Grant Williams over Tice. But if you lose one of those guys, which is exactly what happened mm-hmm. in the first two games of the series with Rob Williams getting injured, 
all of a sudden you have a very, very capable backup or starting big who can do almost everything that you're asking Al Horford or Robert Williams or Grant Williams to do just on a much lesser level. Um, so mm-hmm. you don't have to deviate too much from your scheme. And, and we haven't even talked about Derek White yet. Um, right. Like, and he was their trade deadline prize. And if you're going to ask me what Boston's best lineup is, I'm probably going to say it's Tatum, Brown, Smart, White, and I guess just pick Horford or Williams, whichever you want. Right, either one. Whichever you want, right? Yep. Um, so, yeah, I love Boston. That, that that team is just so, so well built. Ime Doka has done a great job. And the one thing I worry about with them is the outside shooting. Um, I'm just not I'm, I'm not a huge believer in Grant Williams as a shooter at this point. Um, Galen Brown is a good shooter, obviously. Street D, same with Tatum. These guys can make shots, smart, uh, even to a greater extent, Horford. Mm-hmm. These guys can make shots. None of them except Peyton Pritchard are knockdown shooters. And when you... When, when they go up against a team, say the Milwaukee Bucks, who could make life really, really hard on them defensively, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not those jumpers fall and if they don't, how Boston reacts and what they can kind of get into to counter that uh, potential lack of lack of jump shooting. Very true. I agree with all that. And lastly, for the Celtics, got to shout out uh, Ime Udoka, the Portland and Oregon native. Yeah, man. Their, um, also, their, their uh, entire staff is from is like from Portland. It's all, David Sotomayor is on that staff. Aaron Miles is on that right, staff. That's right. That's right. It's pretty cool what he has done there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, shout out to uh, Ime Udoka, Portland State alumni. And uh, yeah, we'll see uh, the Boston uh, Celtics on a tear right now. So I'll, I'll pretty much be watching any series they're in because they just have a complete squad. And yeah, they're getting the job done. Okay, Justice. How about the most pleasant individual surprise of the playoffs for you? Pleasant individual surprise. And I, and I guess by that I just mean player. But if you wanted to, you know, pick like a, pick an individual okay. team or even a strategic thing, whatever you want, up to you. Okay, I'll do both. I'll do both. I'll do player and team. Mm-hmm. Um, team wise, I got to go with Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like I said, I, I knew they were great, phenomenal throughout the season. I just didn't think they were going to take it up to the level they're playing at now, yeah. which is. You know, obviously they've had some close games with Minnesota, but in every game, I, I haven't watched a game yet where they haven't fought back or they haven't continued to play with that grit. So Memphis, oh, yeah. for sure, they're just a pleasure to watch. Even in games, like I said, where they're down 20, you know they've still got a chance because they just don't give up. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the youth or they just have that motor that, you know, kind of keeps them uh, uh, going along there. But, yeah, no, for sure, as team-wise, I'm going with Memphis player that I'm most uh, pleased with or, you know, most impressed by, mm-hmm. uh, I think it actually might be a tie. Mm. And that's going to be a tie between Jason Tatum, Celtics. Obviously, we just sure. gave them so much praise. Uh, he is turning into, um, you know, he, he just he's going to be a top five, top ten player in the league, if not after this season, very, very soon if he's yep. not already there. Um, And then I would tie uh, him with, obviously, they're not on the same level, Jordan Poole for uh, the Golden State Warriors. Uh, That kid is, he's off the charts. (laughs) And and I don't know if I should be giving props to the Warriors front office, uh, to Steve Kerr. But, dude, every seems like every season, every year, they've got a new young guy who could either shoot or slash or whatever they do. They compliment Steph, Clay, mm-hmm. and Draymond's game. And it sounds like you're in agree. <laughs> it agrees with me there that pool, he's got it. 
Oh my God. I mean, I think we talked about him last time a little bit too. He's, I mean, he's, you know, kind of the spitting image of Steph Curry out there. Obviously not at that, obviously not at that level. He's not that level of shooter. He's not that level of decision maker, ball handler, but he's a really, really dynamic shooter and ball handler. Um, and, yes. we, and we kind of started to see that coming last season after he just had a disastrous rookie year that uh, saw him in the G League and really had people wondering whether or not the Warriors reached with that pick late in the first round, uh, whether or not that was a huge mistake. And then all of a sudden, not even two years after people were wondering whether or not Jordan Poole would be out of the league. He is starting tonight uh, for a game that actually just kicked off 10 minutes ago. He's, he's been starting, of course, but uh, throughout the playoffs, Steph Curry has been coming off the bench because um, he came into the playoffs injured. But Steve Kerr has made the call, and the Warriors are now starting that vaunted small lineup with Steph, with Jordan Poole, with Clay, with Wiggins, and Draymond. Um, wow. So. Yeah, shades of shades of 2015 almost when um, when Steve Kerr took on took Andrew Bogut out of the starting lineup uh, midway through that uh, I think it was the second round series maybe mm-hmm. against the uh, against the Memphis Grizzlies put Andre in there and, and you know history changed forever. Um, hey. So yes, no, I love Jordan Poole and uh, you know with with the way he's playing right now and the way the Warriors are playing and, and especially the way he plays in concert with Draymond and Steph and Clay. Perfect fit. Yes, he just fit in so perfectly with those guys. Um, you know, those three guys are so, so, so hard to guard. Um, you know, when one of them has the ball, but even when one of them doesn't have the ball, just because Draymond is orchestrating everything out there, they're running, they're constantly running back screens, slip screens, you know, elbow splits, just constantly making the defense move and think and they're just mm-hmm. all quick decision makers out there. And then Wiggins is obviously a threat as well. So, yeah, Poole is definitely a great call uh, for surprise player. But for me, I'm actually going to say Jalen Brunson uh, for Denver. Oh, wow, I, good choice. Let me ask you this. Coming into this series against Utah, you know, knowing Luca was going to be out for at least three or four games, would you have thought that Jalen Brunson or Spencer Dinwiddie would be more effective or kind of, I guess, emerge as – uh, emerges Dallas's lead ball handler, Sans Luca. I'll tell you one thing. I definitely didn't think he'd be Jalen Brunson for sure, and that's not a knock on him. Yeah. Um, but I'm if I had to choose, you know, going into it without hindsight now, of course, sure. I went with Dinwiddie. Just him kind of being a natural scorer. Yeah. You know, he could he could be that guy on the team if it's just him. He could be that star. Yeah. He's uh, got primary he, player. He's got more size, a little more burst. Um, you know, he's not the shooter. He doesn't have the craft that Brunson does. Um, and he's just a little more proven than Brunson. But my God, Jalen Brunson has just been unbelievable against Utah. I actually pulled up the numbers here. 28.6 points, 5.2 rebounds, and 4.6 assists per game. And he's shooting 47.7% from the field and just under 35% on nearly six three-point attempts per game. And he's just been – he just – honestly – Utah just can't keep him out of the pain. <laughs> like, like yeah, no. you, don't, you don't look at Jalen Brunson, you don't think of Jalen Brunson and think, oh, that guy's John Morant. Or that, that guy is Shea Gildas-Alexander in terms of getting to the paint. Um, no. and, and yet, uh, he is just absolutely carving up Utah. He's carving up he's carving up Mike Conley. He's carving up Donovan Mitchell, who we actually discussed last time a little bit now, remembering just his porous perimeter defense. Uh, but it just doesn't, it doesn't even really matter who, who they're putting on Jalen Brunson. He's been able to get to the rim or to the paint whenever he wants. And it's really interesting. He's, he's an especially good matchup. Um, or tough matchup for Utah, I should say, because he's one of the best floater range players in the entire league. And of course, we all know Rudy Gobert really prefers to stay um, at the rim or in the paint. Um, so Jalen Brunson, through five games, has taken 54 floaters. Oh my God. 54 floaters. And, you know, floaters are 
people think those are high value shots or shots that guys should make. Those are actually really, really tough shots. Yes, they are. Like in the NBA, those shots are very, very hard. And, J- and Jalen Brunson is 28 of 54, 51.9% from fluid from fluid range through five games. Uh, wow. Really just unbelievable. And again, so many of those finishes have come over the length of Rudy Gobert from, you know, from, mm-hmm. from six to eight feet with the defender on his back. Um, I've just been really, really, really impressed with, with Jalen Brunson. And then Dallas in general, of course. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, he's the one leading the charge for them. At least, uh, right. Well, now it's Luca, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. Now it's Luca. You see, certainly about the charge last night. Um, but yeah, Jalen sure. really impressed me. And it's funny. I don't know how this happens, but another connection, of course, you know, Jalen Brunson, the son of former NBA player uh, Rick Brunson, mm-hmm. who spent some time with the Blazers many years ago. Yeah, um, yeah no, he, he's been extremely impressive. Uh, I did not think that he was going to step up to the plate like that. And for me, that just gives. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks even not only more momentum, but they have more star power now at this point because now you have Luca and Brunson that could you know kind of fill up the basket. I, you know, I, I think everybody's pretty disappointed with Utah or they realize um, that it's kind of falling apart over there. So yeah. <laughs> you know, Utah is pretty much done as far as this season goes. And hey, think- set, setting up that theoretical uh, Rudy Gobert trade to the to the Blazers that I love talking about on this show. <laughs> Listen, I think both three, I would not be mad at Rudy Gobert uh, in a Blazers uniform. I would not be, I wouldn't be opposed to that <laughs> at all. All right. Well, another question. I, I was going to respond to that, and then I realized we've done that a couple times. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this this ties into it a little bit, and you know we can we can take this as uh, as in depth or as or just kind of uh, you know kind of at face value as we want. What single player remaining in the playoffs would most help the Blazers? And that's remaining in the playoffs, and you can say literally whichever player you want. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna go. I mean, I know we already touched on it, but I'm gonna say Rudy Gobert. You're gonna say uh, Rudy Gobert? Oh my god! Yeah, because you were gonna say that, right? I am not gonna say that. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'm going to say that because obviously, you know, uh, things falling apart is falling in Utah right now um, in Salt Lake City. But I, I could see Dame playing with a Rudy Gobert type, even if it's not him. But I could see that. I could see Ant playing with a Rudy Gobert where, you know, it's kind of like how they use Nurk right now. You need a big guy down there to protect the rim, a guy you could throw lobs to consistently. Definitely. Um, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, Rudy, obviously, you know, we know how great he is defensively, but he, to me, he would be enough as far as points goes and offensive rebounds goes that it wouldn't take too much away from Dame, of course, being the star player and leader of the Blazers. Mm-hmm. And then Ants, of course, is going to get his buckets when, you know, he gets that big contract. So that's my thoughts. But it sounds like you're on a different page right now. I am. Quick question for you: Do you think uh-huh. Do you think Gobert's a better offensive player, or he'd do as well uh, within the Blazers system as Nurkic? Uh, I think he'd do better. I think he'd do better. Um, and I know it's not. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to. Sorry to interrupt you. I think people might be surprised to hear you say that. Um, is is really is all I was going to say. Well, but people, you know, people who nece- who don't necessarily watch the Jazz, or mm. I suppose you know, are just on Twitter all the time, or you know, <laughs> listen to, or listening to Talking Heads and Talking Heads only. They uh-huh. don't know what Rudy Gobert is about offensively. Uh, you no, know, they, they look at the fact that he's you know not posting up at all, uh, certainly on like size players, and then even on switches, he's not he's not necessarily a guy who's going to put you know. Put a smaller put a smaller defender into the basket and dunk on them. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean he's right. been pretty, he's been criticized for that throughout his career. It's, it's happening right now. Um, right. I don't care about any of that. 
at all. What I want is a guy who set who set the league record for true shooting percentage this season, who shot like 72% from the field, who's an imminent lob threat, who sprints into screens, who is a canny screen setter. He flips them. He can flip them at the last second. He can slip out of them. He's gotten a little better uh, catching on short rolls and I've taken one dribble and finishing or making the next pass. Um, so I, I think he's a little more limited than a guy like Yusuf Nurkic, who's obviously a really, really, really good passer. Um, sure. un- underrated in that sense, I would say. You can run offense through Nurk at the elbow the, or, or through delay action um, when he's catching at the top of the key um, the way you can't through a guy like Rudy Gobert. But the Blazers want to set a lot of ball screens anyway, even under Chauncey mm-hmm. Phillips uh, for, for Dame Lillard and for Anthony Simons. And, you know, there isn't a better screen and dive man in the NBA than Rudy Gobert to me. So, yes, right. I actually do think he's also would be uh, superior to Yusuf Nurkic in the Blazers offense, uh, just like you do. But I was surprised to hear you say that, honestly. And, I'm, and I was, I think our listeners would be surprised to hear us say it, too. <laughs> yeah, they might. Like I said, I'm going based off what we've seen from Rudy. And then, of course, he's seven one. Seven nine wingspan. I mean, that's hard to beat right there. Yeah, um, longest and, league. Right, exactly. And I'm really anytime I'm thinking of you know players that would benefit the Blazers, I'm always thinking how they'll mesh with Dame's game primarily, and then of course uh, second matching with you know their other pieces that they have, Ant and um, any other guys they might bring in through the draft or summer league, but mainly Dame. You know, right. and that pick and roll I think would be kind of unstoppable uh, if if that did happen. Well, I feel like I'm cheating in this uh, in this little question that I asked you because the answer now seems so obvious to me. But you know who would be incredible uh, in, in pick and roll with Dame is Ooh. Giannis Santacumpo. <laughs> oh, come on, man! <laughs> yeah. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. It's you know it's, it would have been like picking LeBron James and for this exercise in 2016. Yeah, I think Giannis is the best player in the world. Um, I True. think you know I think if you were the Blazers, you put him at the five um, full time. You you move on from Nurk. Uh, and, you know, I said Rudy Gobert was the best screen and dive man in the NBA. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo becomes the best screen and dive man in the NBA in that scenario. And not only that, he can bring the ball up for you. Uh, you can run offense through him. Obviously, your transition game is it magically appears from nowhere if you have Giannis Antetokounmpo on your team. He's a transition engine unto himself. But then even more than all that is he just would infuse the Blazers with length and athleticism and versatility that they just don't have right now and that Chauncey Billups really, really wants to rely on. Uh, so for me, it's Giannis, and it's it's not particularly close. Um, and, and you know, once I honestly came up with that answer, I was like, "Why am I asking this question? It seems so obvious that, so obvious. <laughs> that Giannis would be it." But then you said, uh, "But then you said Gobert, so that helped us." I also had Tatum down for the same reasons we've talked about Tatum, um, and then just uh, some other role players, just that I listed off in the top of my head who could help the Blazers. We've talked about Marcus Smart. Uh, we've talked about Mikhail Bridges. You know, are they role players of the top two vote getters, defensive player of the year? So maybe not. Uh, Herb Jones would obviously really, really help the Blazers. I've got to love Herb. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about Herb. Uh, you know, rookie rookie wing from New Orleans, such an impactful defender, uh, an emerging shooter, and, you know, has a little, a little bit of juice with the ball. I think he can attack a closeout, two to three dribbles. Uh, Scotty Barnes, just with how versatile he is, how he can run, you can run offense through Scotty Barnes. Um, he's, he can attack mismatches. He would really help the Blazers. And then another guy who's really shown shown throughout the playoffs that he's a uh, he's an impact player even in the postseason is Brandon Clark from Memphis. Um, I just yes. mentioned I just mentioned how the Blazers lack athleticism. They lack pop. They lack oomph. Brandon Clark has athleticism and pop and oomph in spades uh, to the point where he's completely taken over. Uh, you know, 
being the being the Grizzlies' primary center in this in this series and really changed that game last night. I think he had six offensive rebounds in, wow. the, in the fourth quarter alone during that definitive Grizz, Grizzlies run, and then also they've been switching him uh, onto onto Anthony Edwards even, and he's and he's held his own for the most part. So I've been really really impressed by Brandon Clark as well. Are there any other more role players or players at that level who you think would be good fits? You know, I, what I will say is, and, you know, the Warriors, obviously, we know the Warriors have been successful in the past year. Um, for me, when I look at a roster for a team like the Warriors, even the Celtics that like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. I think about all the things that possibly the Blazers are missing, and it's really those solid and consistent support role players, guys coming off the bench, yep. guys that are maybe farther down in the rotation, but every time they come in the game, you know, there's no drop off. the the yep. The lead is able to be held. As I, as I look at even the uh, uh, Warriors roster right now, I see guys like Jonathan Kaminga, Damian Lee, Gary Payton the second, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan Poole, of course, who's now in the starting lineup. Even Otto Porter, who yep. you know uh, his game is not as it was when he first came in the league, but still a great support player. Yeah, uh, Wizards for him in uh, free agency last year, I believe. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then even, of course, got to add in a Juan Toscano-Anderson. Just looking at some of these rosters for the teams that have been more successful in the playoffs uh, as of late, you just see that their depth is – it's undeniable. You know, from the starting lineup all the way to the last guy on the bench, you know, they're able to get deep into the rotation as you get farther into the game because, you know, they're up by 20 or they're up by – you know, almost 30 points mm-hmm. and you, you can kind of rest your stars. And I think that's uh, something that the Blazers should really try to focus on uh, this summer uh, as we go into the fall and get ready for next season is that, you know, you got to have guys that can get into the game when Dame is out and needs a breather, when Ant is out, that can at least hold the lead somewhat so that when Dame and everybody else is fresh, you know, we, we've still got legs. We haven't, you know, the, the, the lead hasn't faltered. You know, we have to find that that balance, I guess. And I think you would agree, teams like the Warriors, the Celtics, Memphis, um, these teams, their their whole roster from top to bottom, bottom to top, they're solid, if that, if that makes sense. No, it's exactly right. And I, I love that we're finishing with some Blazers notes here as well after after, mm-hmm. after talking playoffs. Seems like we're getting better at this whole podcasting thing. <laughs> I think so. Um, but I, no, I, I absolutely love what you said, and I totally agree with it. And for the Blazers, that's that's going to be a tough needle to thread is finding those guys. Uh, you know, those guys number. You know, guys eight, eight, nine, ten on the roster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the Blazers obviously they need to add an impact player or two this summer. We they've got the six guys under contract who are going to be in the rotation next season. Um, Dame, Ant, uh, and you know. Who knows who starts or whatever. I'm not getting into that. Dame, Ant, Nasir Little, Josh Hart, Yusuf Nurkic, and Justice Winslow will very, very likely be back and be part of the rotation. Um, so that's six players. And then, again, they're hoping to add another impact wing player for sure, maybe some more depth at center. But just elsewhere on the roster, and now we're kind of getting into talking about the players who the Blazers relied on over the last two months of the regular season when they were tanking. Mm-hmm. And Trendon Watford turned into – you know, a player of the caliber of Grant Williams, for instance. Um, right. You know, can can Keon Johnson, um, you know, you know, in, like immediately uh, grow his game to the point where he can be an impact player next season. We can count on him to come in, and and uh, you know what he's going to give you on both ends: some really active defense, heating up the ball, 
um, you know, shooting open three pointers, really running in transition, that type of thing. Brandon Williams, um, just those types of guys, are they going to be able to provide that kind of homegrown depth that teams like Boston, teams like Memphis, teams like Golden State have been able to cultivate? Um, that's just a thing that you don't really think about with respect to the Blazers because they have so many big picture existential questions that need answering. Uh-huh. Um, but man, I totally agree with you at this level. Like you need that depth. You hear the trope that, oh, depth doesn't matter as much in the playoffs. That's true to a certain extent, um, but it's more for me. It's just about your stars. Your stars will be playing over 40 minutes a game. But when the that when the level of basketball is this high, there are inevitably going to be injuries. But more importantly, you are inevitably going to have to change the way you were you were playing, uh, not just from a given game, uh, but series to series. You are going to be forced to do that. So you will need more than six or seven guys. You need eight or nine, and that's why teams like Boston, teams like Golden State, teams like Memphis are successful and will continue to be successful going forward. It's not just because they're high end talent, but again, those homegrown role players or, you know, those eighth, ninth and 10th guys that come in and there's no drop off because you know exactly what you're getting from them. Exactly. And I fully agree with you. I don't even have anything to, to go up against that. There is no opposition here. I'm we're, we're in the same boat right now, Jack, for sure. Well, we're probably in the same boat of wanting to end the show and go watch the Warriors and the Nuggets. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, Justice, tell our listeners where they can find your work. Absolutely. As always, folks, Blazers fans, Rip City, uh, Portland citizens, Oregon residents, uh, you can find me at Justice Rogers TV. Uh, that's on Twitter and Instagram. That's spelled J U S T U S R O G E R S T V. It's spelled the same way it sounds, Just Us Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S-T-V. Twitter, Instagram, mostly active on Twitter the most. You can find me on there uh, talking sports with Jack as we continue in these playoffs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, of course, I'll always be back here uh, with my good friend, the Jack Winter. Wow. Wow, that article in front of my name. Uh, you, can find, <laughs> you can find the Jack Winter on Twitter at Armstrong Winter. All my Blazers work at Clutch Points. You've been listening to Talking Trailblazers, and actually, before we go, Justice, something uh, I wanted to do last episode, and really every other episode that I've done on this show, but uh, that I haven't done, is to ask our listeners to write reviews, review the show on wherever you're listening to this podcast, iTunes, Spotify, whatever your podcast player is, leave us a review, we would love to hear it, Justice even reads them, I am getting around to that myself, got to work up the courage <laughs> yeah guys it, look if jack doesn't do it best believe i always will i look at the comments uh on instagram i look at the tweets and i definitely look at the reviews on the apple podcast app so yeah please give us a review honest review of course of course and uh yeah we'll be paying attention so thank you guys as always and we will be back next week justice i will talk to you then all right thank you so much thank you all right